listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. All right, welcome to episode number 76 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Bo Robinson. Bo is a former professional rugby player who started out his career in rugby league with the Bulldogs under-20s. He then went on to the Waratahs Academy and senior side for three years, which included a Super Rugby final in 2008 before moving to Italy to play. After that, he moved to Brisbane, played club rugby, worked in a bar, got picked up by the Reds and went on to win a Super Rugby title in 2011 and a Wallabies cap. He also had two seasons with the Harlequins in the UK and he's now working as a business and leadership coach. It's a pleasure to have him on the show, so welcome both. Thanks, Andrew. Excited to be on here. Yeah, nice, mate. Uh, good, good to good to chat. This is actually the first time I've, I've had a chat with like an ex-player who's... You know, not uh, not in the professional coaching realm or anything like that. So I'm really, really looking forward to get that kind of player perspective because I think that's uh, you know a missing piece for coaches uh, that that they can really kind of tap into. So excited for the chat. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, so touch on the the backstory. Pretty interesting going to rugby league and then into union. How, how'd that work? And uh, you know, tell tell us a little bit about it. Um, yeah, mate. So I was I went to boarding school in Bathurst, which is about two and a half, three hours um, uh, west of Sydney in, yeah. in country New South Wales, and about two hours from where I live um, in Dubbo. Uh, and was mate, initially going to go play, uh, go join the army. Actually, I wanted to go join the army, and then had a bit of a you know, a breakout year um, in my final year of school and started and got selected for Australian schoolboys. And then there was a bit of interest there from um, club rugby teams in Sydney, but also, as you said, the, some of the NRL teams and making playing in their 20 squad. So yeah. uh, the Bulldogs showed interest, and I'd, I'd never really played league. I played a few games, but um, I'd played soccer up until. Uh, 14 or 15 and then then went down and started playing rugby mm. and thought well yeah that's probably a good opportunity and just really liked um, what they were sort of offering in terms of their training schedule and the fact that it was probably a bit more aligned um, with the actual first grade team and whatnot so yeah. I did that um, yeah mate that's that's how I got into the league eh? I had the one year there lived in Belmore in Sydney which was um, you know a bit of an experience coming um, from, <laughs> from the, the country, country. Yeah. but um, no I I enjoyed it and, and found it very beneficial the experience in general and had had that then lead into the into the Waratahs so uh, the Bulldogs were happy to re-sign me, but I just wasn't – a lot of my friends had moved down to Sydney and they were all pretty much living on the beaches, either, um, you know, Coogee, um, the Randwick area, a few of them playing there, a few in the eastern yeah. suburbs, with, yeah. you know, Bondi and, and that, and then a few over in Manly. And I was really missing them because with the rugby league, you play generally on the Friday night or a lot of the games are on the Sunday. And mm. um, I didn't really – and, uh, you know, I sort of made friends with, at the Bulldogs, but definitely, you know, a lot of the guys who moved down to Sydney are blokes that I'd been at boarding school with, so we were very, you know, close friends. 
And I just decided that I wasn't necessarily enjoying life so much. Like yeah. I love love league, love playing the game. You know, I still watch it all a fair bit of the time. And yeah, just went right. I've got, I've got to do what's going to make me happier. So um, yeah, ended up signing with the Waratahs in the academy there and joining um, Northern Suburbs in Sydney. Right, right. And uh, from from that. Uh, yeah, ended up playing like a Super Rugby final. Was that against the Crusaders? I think I remember that one. It was a wasn't a good yeah. day. No, nah, nah, it wasn't. <laughs> it was a rough I, one. I yeah, a, yeah. I signed a two year deal with the academy, but after the first year, I um, got upgraded and signed a three year deal with a full time squad. Right, so, right. two thousand and seven, I played um, nine games. Yeah. Um, two thousand and eight, uh, played twelve. And yeah, as you mentioned in Super Rugby semi final and final final, yes. we lost to the Crusaders, yeah. and then the following he didn't play anything. Right, right. And um, so this is, it's really cool, like where you went from there. You went, you ended up going over to Italy uh, mm. to play, and you were like when we were, we were setting the interview up, you said it was like third third tier <laughs> Italy rugby, which sounds sounds pretty um, like. Incredible! It must have been a great lifestyle lifestyle change, but uh, from going from Super Rugby to third grade Italy uh, or third division Italy uh, Italian rugby, what, what was that experience like? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a good lifestyle. Like we we're getting paid cheap, sort of just enough to sort of live, and then a little yeah. bit of spending money for some very budget travelling sort of thing with the Ryanair and you know, staying at the backpackers and whatnot. And that was yeah. only you know for a couple of weekends. So, um, but like the actual cultural experience was, mm. yeah, really enjoyed that. It's probably more what that. I meant there. Yeah, instead yeah, of lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just don't want to, yeah people living <laughs> it up in. <laughs> it definitely wasn't the case, and the quality of rugby yeah. would be pretty ordinary, and that's probably being um, kind. So it was, you know, the, I, I genuinely believe the, the competition out here in Dubbo at the moment is probably better than um, the one I played with in Italy, and it was awesome. quite frustrating, you know, yeah. the coaches. Not even old school mentality, but you know they were teachers and whatnot. And mm. I'd been, you know, I, the year before, mate, I'd been, I'd had, you know, Les Kisses, defence coach, yeah. Scott Wise, all there, like, and then I was going back, yeah, a long way. So that was quite frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had to, like, so that's like to go from that, and then you you move back, and you 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 told me like you're you're a garbo for a while there, which for for mm. non Australian listeners is a, a garbage collector, which uh, that's pretty old school rugby league, you know, seventies eighties training yeah. methods there. Um, and then you were working in a bar, and you you played NRC too uh, when you moved back to Brisbane. Is that right? So I moved back to Sydney um, and, yeah, was working as a garbo. And then um, I ended up moving up to Brizzy to um, just train with the Reds up there. So I wasn't getting paid. Right, I just right. got the opportunity to go and train in the preseason for 2011. And so I was working in a pub um, Wednesday, Friday night, and Saturday, Saturday night sort of thing. So mm-hmm. putting in shifts there. But, um, yeah, that's when I went up there and did that. And I wasn't actually contracted with the Reds. Right. Had a clause in the contract or the agreement, which Rupa had, that if you played, Rupa being the Rugby Union Players Association, if you played five games, you um, got an automatic contract, which was a you know, $52,000 contract pro rata. So it was 
you know, not massive money, but it was, mm. it was security. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm just thinking about that, like, you know, you go from professional rugby with the Tars and then you're, you're over in Italy and then you're kind of trying to get your way back in. Who was, who was some of the main kind of influences in that time, like, to really kind of keep you, keep you pushing forward and, you know, like, help you, like, try to achieve, like, because obviously you're trying to get back into professional rugby and, you know, who were yeah. some of the people who, so, who helped you in that time? Yeah, so when I actually yeah, went back to Sydney, I went and I was at a change club by this stage and had gone to the Warringah Rats and I was, I think I was captain 2010. Yeah. Um, and so there wasn't, like, that's the only access I had there was the coaches at the time there. Mm. So no professional coaches, and I was fortunate that I did have um, Semi Harris, who was played at the Waratahs with two stints and had gone to rugby league, and he was he was looking to get into that professional um, coaching uh, area, he, and he was working in the city as well, and I'd mm-hmm. played with him as well, so that was pretty handy having that. And mm-hmm. um, he's now at the Rico Black Rams, I'm pretty sure he's still there. Um, so no one necessarily in in that period of time when I'd come back to Australia. But before that, I was quite fortunate, you know, even when I went to the Waratahs, you know, I was pretty raw as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't necessarily know a heap about the game and understanding the game. Could sort of see it, but didn't necessarily understand it. And, uh, you know, I had some good coaches there, such as Greg Mum, Shannon Fraser, who both mm-hmm. went on to assist Fiji, um, Joe Barricade, who did some stuff yeah. with the Fox and Ulster. Um, and then when you got to um, up to uh, that professional, the next level, when, when I was with the full-time team, um, obviously you and McKenzie, who was the head coach yeah. there, um, loved working with Les Kiss, who was defensive coach and done a fair bit over in Ireland. Uh, Todd Loudon, who was with the Bulls just before he came back to the Waratahs. Um, who else was there? Scotty Wiseman, as I said. Mm-hmm. Scotty Wiseman, he's a good bloke, and yeah, and I don't think you know, now that I do business coaching and leadership coaching, um, they didn't necessarily push me mm. because I think I wanted to, you know, I, I was a highly motivated individual, but they mm. were able to get the most out of me, if that makes sense. Like yeah. I didn't need to be told. To you know, go and do these extras. Like I would sit there and proactively go, right? What do I need to? Do? What can you tell me that I need to do? Mm. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I read a book a couple of months ago, the Alter Ego Effect. I can't remember the author of it. Um, and he's just talking. He's a he's a motivation. No, not a, motiv- a performance coach. Mm. Actually, talked about the fact that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't touch motivation. But if people aren't motivated, that's not his job to get them motivated. Mm. And I thought that pretty spot on eh? I find yeah. that myself yeah and you hear, you hear Steve Hansen talk about that too it's not his job yeah. to motivate the players right uh, no create an environment where they can excel mm, absolutely and who, like who like of those experiences the coaches you mentioned there what were what were some of the the things they did to create that environment where you can excel what were what were some of their strategies that you're reflecting um, back well, Investing the time, I mm. think, um, quite clear on what they wanted and expected, but also mm-hmm. 
good blokes. Yeah. Like, you know, it's pretty hard to come to train and not be a good bloke and get people to like you and play for you and then yeah. you go away. And, you know what I mean? You've just got to be a genuine person that people want to actually get along with and not be a dickhead. And that's not to say, you know, everyone's your best friend and whatnot, but mm. you, you you respect them and you like them. Um, yeah, so I suppose investing that time that I give you the feedback, that's what I really like. And some of those things that I did like about them were their actual, um, you know, their philosophies are a bit around rugby too. Mm. What, what, like, what were some of those examples? Oh, I really love, like, Les Kisses' um, defence when we were um, – at the at the Tars there, it was like a, a very aggressive, very physical, mm. um, with a, more of a focus on the the dominant tackles as opposed to necessarily the breakdown, which I yeah. really enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, and Toddy Loudon was pretty good. He he was uh, he um, his focus on like you know actually playing rugby. He really wanted to and develop our skills and you know play attacking rugby, which was good. Um, Joe Barragat was good, just especially you know, from that number seven perspective and teaching me um, around you know what I should be looking for and doing as a number seven because mm-hmm. I said like I sort of I'd gone away to league as well, so I had never had really access to those coaches who yeah. were. Who are able to teach us that sort of stuff? Yeah, cool. And it sounds like having kind of uh, a clear, well, not only having a clear philosophy and principles, but being able to articulate that to the players is is pretty pretty important in that in that area. Yeah, being yeah, articulate that and being able to um, you know give you time, be willing to give you time. Yeah, you know, if you want to do yeah. that, it's not an easy case. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point there too. Um, so yeah, like uh, pretty. Yeah, it's a bit of a fairy tale story, really. Like uh, you know, when you when you think about it, uh, you end up winning the well, not you winning it uh, personally, but uh, as part of the Reds in 2011, um, winning uh, the 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 Super Rugby title. Um, what like that's been pretty heavily talked about. Um, like not just that 2011 season, but the build up to it the previous years. What 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 do you think from from being like hands on and involved in that? What were some of the key things uh, that the coaches, the coaching staff, really got right uh, on field, off field with that with that uh, playing group? Yeah, I think they were quite clear on what they wanted to play. By the sounds of it, again, I don't know what the other coaches were like within that. Um, they were. They made some. They were willing to make some tough decisions. Like there was a bit of a turnover there in players, right. and they were looking for people that were really willing to work hard. I think like mm-hmm. there was no complacency there, mm-hmm. um, and they were willing to give blokes opportunities. So like you know you would. There were plenty of young guys there, especially the year before I got there, that got their opportunity, not necessarily because they were high so up the pecking order, but because they were, you know, training well and performing. So I think as soon as you do that, that builds a lot of respect to them. People, you know, um, changes the culture that it's not just you're not entitled to it. Mm. You've actually got that. Um, and that's, again, from... I'm not being there, but, uh, you know, that's what the other boys were saying. Instilled a couple of things, like I remember, um, you know, the boys saying that in that first year when Ewan got there, if you came into the change room, you had to go around and shake everyone's hand, build that up. Nice. Yeah. But I think, uh, you know, as I said, giving that honest feedback and belief to blokes that they could play and they would they would get selected if they performed definitely built 
um, competition within the squad. Yeah, yeah, and it's like I'm a massive fan of you and McKenzie. Um, what what were your what were your kind of big kind of light bulb moments working under him uh, as as a player? What were some of the things that he really kind of got got going with the team? And you know, one of the things that stands out for me as well is like his ability to um, coach teams to beat Kiwi teams. Um, he's had a huge amount of success there. What, touching on a few of those points, what were some of the things that stand out for you for Link? Um, <clears throat> I think like Link uh, is like his ability to get respect from people. Mm. He, he's not a he's not a social butterfly. Yeah, he's a, he's very much an introvert who doesn't necessarily like to go out. You know, or happily go away and 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 um, you know spend time on his own and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So there's this perception that maybe as leaders and head coach you have to sit there and get along and, you know, socialise with everyone and make them mm. feel like a million dollars, whereas I think he just genuinely um, gave you the respect, the time of day, honest feedback and cared to see how things were going. So I think that was, you know, one of the biggest aspects of him. Um, humility, like he, he wouldn't necessarily have all the answers. Mm. Uh Pretty, pretty big on standards and expectations. Obviously, like if you, if you, if you want to be at the top, you've got to have pretty high standards and expectations. So that was another thing. Um, and the use of his coaches too. You know, we had some some games there where we'd really change up the tactics, and um, that was hugely important too, getting us to believe in those tactics while we would be doing those. And yeah. Yeah, how how it's how was that kind of rolled out? Like, was that like in you know, fifteen v fifteen kind of scenarios uh, that 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 you'd be doing that on field? Yeah, it might be uh, reviewing, um, you know, identifying areas where we thought we could capitalise on against the opposition. You know, the, some weaknesses that they might have identified. The, mm-hmm. the coaches style generally reviewing the opposition two or three weeks in advance. Yeah. So they almost have it set up the week before and you maybe see a little bit from their last game, but there's not necessarily a great deal of change for teams week to week. Mm. Um, and we talk through that, you know, it might be the use of the whiteboard maybe or, um, you know, a PowerPoint, go through, you know, those visuals, obviously auditory when we're in there, then going out there and we might walk through that, discuss it a little bit more, maybe on the Monday or the Tuesday and try and execute that maybe in the Tuesday team run or, or definitely on the Thursday. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. And what Now that now you've been out of the game for a while, um, what reflecting back, um, you know, I know, we were talking about this earlier. Um, you know, this this goes out mostly to to grassroots coaches who are you know just trying to get better every day and try to help their athletes. What what would be like as a as a player coming out of your career? Would you like to, if you could go back and say, I wish I wish I had some you know some assistance in this or some support in these areas or. You know, you even touched on that maybe, you know, the onus is also on the players a little bit as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think uh, I've now that I've stepped away and probably doing a bit more of the um, the theory side of leadership and whatnot, um, the importance of understanding the different personality types and how yeah. to connect and, yeah. and communicate with those different people that are in your team. Yeah. Uh, and the genuine, again, like it's 
as a leader, you've got to be willing to invest time in developing those relationships. Mm-hmm. And that can be a hard, one of the hardest things I find as a part-time coach is that, you know, with our training, we might rock up at, training starts at 6.30, blokes might rock up at a quarter past six, finish at eight, and they might be out of there at 10 yeah. past eight. Yeah. Building those connections there can be quite tough, um, whereas that's obviously um, a lot easier uh, when it's your full-time gig, so I, I reckon um, you know coaches probably could invest more time, especially in the leadership group. Mm. Is it, you know that's your best return on money investment and um, investment in money, time, and energy for me. I think if you can you know get the most out of them, then it has a knock-on, a flow-on effect to the rest of the squad. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And, um, we. I, on on my podcast, one of my first, like I think it was episode eight, I had uh, Ray McLean on. Uh, oh, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had him on. And I know uh, Ewan worked with him at the Waratahs and and possibly at the Reds as well. And no, he was at the Tars when I was there too. Oh right, right. So it, for me, like speaking to him, it was a bit of a kind of uh, rock star moment. Uh, I've been following, you know, I've read all his books and following the processes that he does and adapting them to my uh, environment, my coaching environment. Um, when you talk leadership groups, I, I immediately think of that. Um, what were your experiences with uh, with, with Ray and, and the, the techniques that, that leading teams use? Yeah, I didn't have a, a heap to do with Ray, we did a bit in 2007, and I was, it was, you know, my first exposure to it, it was quite interesting. Mm. I was like, wow, and it was, um, like, it's very structured and manufactured. So mm. I, I say to, um, you know, teams and leaders that there's two ways to grow or increase, enhance your, um, your culture, you know what I mean? Mm. And that sometimes it just happens organically. Yeah. That you just, you know, you walk into the right environment, it's just the right people there at the right time, mm-hmm. and sometimes you sort of got to make that happen. So, yeah, I really enjoyed because obviously that was the manufactured side a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a real structure around it. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting to see what we were doing there, um, you know, and what that one, what was all about. I, I wish I could remember more from that time, actually. Um, but, it, you know, it was what I really liked about it, and I think, um, you know, why Ewan probably was a big fan of it is it it was being honest with each other and yes. saying well what what do we expect from each other like yeah and people fear um giving honest feedback but you simply can't be the best that you want to be or reach your potential if there's not that culture or that environment of giving mm-hmm. honest feedback to each other and making sure that you are you know demanding um expectations that are you know bloody high of each other mm. um it just—it's not possible. I've done, you know, a fair bit of interviewing with people from high-performance teams, especially, you know, obviously the sporting background, but the military and, and the police force. You know, the best of the best, mm. and the same thing. They're just like you. Just, you know, you've got to be able to identify the areas that you need to improve on. Yeah. Thought, yeah, buddy, spot on, isn't it? Like, you know, whereas that doesn't necessarily happen in the um you know general community the civilian community no no agreed and i think what i've found from from you know using raised methods and adapting them is most of the players actually want it they want that feedback they want that that review and they want that critique as long as it's delivered in a you know a way that's not you know 
you know, too too damaging and that there's, you know, and one of the things he talks about in his peer review is that there's always got to be a, here's what you're doing really well, but here's something you need to work on. So it's it's a it's a bit of both worlds. Um, but I, I find most most of the players, they want that feedback. Yeah, and if they don't, then they usually, like, if you create that yeah. culture that they don't like that, yeah. then you'll weed them out pretty quickly yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Because there are some people like, um, you know, we're talking about humility. You, for humility to be effective or the, the whole concept of humility is admitting that you're not perfect and everything. You've got plenty of areas mm. to work on. So, yeah, you know, you've got to have people that. And as you said, like, it's that – it's you've got to be quite clear on what they do need to improve on, but how do you deliver that? And, you know, I say you've got two approaches depending on you know, the type of person, who it is that you're dealing with. You either um, build them up and then smack them down or smack them down and then build them up, which yeah. one, you know, way you can deliver it first or <laughs> you're going to give them the good news, what they're doing well, and then yeah. what they need to work on or the other way around. Yeah. Again, you've got to be read that, which person sure. can get the most of that or, or which is going to have the best effect. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Like, uh, and I've gotten that wrong plenty of times, <laughs> and no doubt, yeah, that's that's part of the. And you always learn from that. And um, I think that's that's a huge challenge of coaching. You you're not coaching robots. You're coaching people, and we're complex um, organisms. And being able to try and work out, you know, what kind of feedback works for some and others is is a big challenge. Mm, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, well, you're you're facing that challenge too. I had a quick look on your your LinkedIn profile. You're director of rugby at uh, Dubbo Rugby Club. Um, that's yep. awesome. Like, you know, grassroots as it comes, and uh, you know, back to back to your your original stomping ground and everything like that. Can you tell us a bit about that role and you know what have been some of the the highs and lows of the, those experiences? Um, the so, yeah, I moved back start of last year to Dubbo from the UK, so 1st of January 2018. Um, and my role, I sort of implemented that role, uh, director of rugby. So we, we've got a first grade, a second grade, a Colts and a ladies. And the ladies, we haven't had a ladies team for a while, so we, we want to get that happening because we've, yeah. we've identified that there's going to be significant growth in the women's game. Well, there has been and it's going to continue Absolutely. to be that um, and mine sort of oversees a bit more everything and I suppose that's just to ensure that um, you're not investing just solely your time and energy into the top grade team I don't Mm -hmm. that's a sustainable um, approach if you want long term success so you know I I get able to connect with the Colts, the second graders and whatnot. And, yeah, so far that's been pretty beneficial in terms of um, uh, getting those blokes engaged yeah. with, with myself but and the other coaches, but more so with each other. You know, we do a lot of stuff as a club, um, try to implement a few things such as, you know, different coaches just maybe running drills and then rotating the players through so that they're all exposed to different coaches. The first graders getting coached at times by the Colts coaches and the Colts are getting, you know, coached by the first graders. It's good for them to have that exposure, I believe, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And um, are you what, – what kind of director of rugby are you? Are you you're more overseeing that or are you doing some on-field coaching yourself? 
a little bit, yeah, on-field coaching, probably more um, than I'd like to, uh, but also I'm, I am, you know, quite passionate and whatnot. And, you know, with that experience um, where I've had access to some of the world's best coaches, mm. you know, trying to incorporate or implement some of the things that I've learned from them over the years. Um, but no, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I try to stick out of the drills as much as I can mm. when I do other coaches running those. Often mm. I'll go and if I, there's a new drill, I'm like, right, I think we need to focus on this. I might go and start that for a week or two and then step away and get someone else to try and take right. that over. Just again, I think um, the restrictions with time and being able to sit down with your assistant coaches and go, right, this is what this should look like and bang, 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 we're all busy people. So mm. it can be quite uh, quite hard to access all of them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that would like that would be one of the challenges too, coming from that professional environment into the amateur environment. Uh, no doubt that's one of many challenges that you're you're seeing. Okay, this is not the Harlequins, this is not the Reds. How how's that going? Yeah, it, it, that was a big learning curve. You know, sitting there going, um, <laughs> right, we've got. You know, these lineouts that I want to bring in by the end of the season for these different reasons, and you know, wow, we, we got through about a, a quarter or a third of them <laughs> just because, you know, you, you, you haven't had the pre season. Like last year, we started pre season at the end of January after straight on the 26th of Jan. Um, this year, we started a bit early, but, you know, you, you don't have November, December. You've only got two sessions a week, yeah. um, you know, as opposed to what in pre season, it's six or eight. At the Reds, um, you know, blokes are not always there either. Mm. Dubbo is like it's a very big service city too. So mm. often, um, uh, you know, the tradies are away for they might be out of town all week because they're servicing a town that's you know four or five hundred k's away. Mm. Uh, and then the agri business guys are the same thing; they're always away, and that we've got a large contingent of that. So that can be quite frustrating getting yeah. all of those guys there um, but it is what it is too yeah. sort of thing yeah um, and yeah being able to adapt to that and modify training and probably the expectations around what you can get out of them too for sure and what what have been some of the ways that you've adapted and overcome those situations that you feel are working uh Ensuring that everyone in the club has the same calls. Yeah. Uh, I think that's been a big one, you know, that um, if someone goes away, that they can come back in the second grade and work their way up and we can get second graders. Like, it seems pretty obvious, but it wasn't necessarily always happening before. Mm. Um, as I said, making sure that we are doing stuff as a club um, to develop those relationships and mm. those connections. Yeah. the club, um, you know, making sure that everyone, we've all got the one session plan, so everyone is doing similar things at the same time, so we can monitor and manage that too, making sure that we're all training on the same um, same training field, um, you know, things that 
sound pretty basic, but yeah, that's what we've had to do there to ensure that. And we try, I try to do, um, probably haven't gone as, been doing as much this year, but last year, especially, you know, when we are teaching people things using the, the VAK, that visual audio kinesthetic, so mm-hmm. uh, explaining what it is in terms of um, whether it be a new pattern, then going through that on the whiteboard, um, whether it be using markers or I use magnets often and try and put that on a, you know, a layout of a field and then walking through that a couple of times then mm. actually stepping it up um, that's been beneficial and we've invested very little time this year in terms of our patterns and our systems mm. but we because we'd put so much time and effort in it last year, we haven't had to. Even though there's still been a massive turnover of players, they actually, like, more, we've had more players come in or turn over than we've been able to retain last year as a percentage. Mm. Yet our systems and our structures are a lot better than what they were last year because without doing as much work, because those who understood it have been able to then go and educate yeah. the others. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good message there too. I, I use, I, I always say to my my players, like uh, I'm not the only coach here. I've got I've got 30 coaches here, and I'm just one of them. So everyone needs to be a coach, and you know, you can't you can't you can't manage every situation, and you're not going to be on the field with them. So that that's key. Yeah, you got to take ownership and just be able to adapt on the field. That's one of the hardest things in terms of the coaching is that if you are going to have the structures and systems, is that making sure that um, you know everyone's preaching or coaching the right, the correct structure or system, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, even last night, there was a little bit of an issue there where it, you know, slight details sometimes but they can be so crucial in terms of the effectiveness of a certain play or pattern or whatever it may be mm. making sure you know again we're talking about time a lot of the coaches might rock up there at, you know five past ten past six getting them to understand what it, how it should be so they can go out and coach it that's probably been one of the biggest challenges for me too yeah yeah no doubt all right cool well um you know like i mentioned in the in the introduction you now your your main uh, area of uh, work is is in business and leadership coaching. Um, what what's a bit of a general description of, of what you're doing and how you how you got into that role and and, and some of maybe some of the groups you're working with and those kind of things. Yeah, so I was studied I studied a bachelor of business throughout my rugby career and that took me ten years to finish and I'm um, you know, pretty proud of that yeah, absolutely. The fact that it did take me that long and you know, during that time I was living in um, obviously Australia, New Zealand, Italy, Poland and the UK. So mm. um, you know, it hasn't always been easy. Uh, and um, so when I had the year out as as a garbo, I was like, you know, I hadn't finished my um, degree, obviously, and I'm sitting there going, right, what do I want to actually do post my rugby career? And obviously, you know, a Bachelor of Business is just a Bachelor of Business. And it wasn't until sort of at the end of the career that I sort of came across the business coaching and joined the company Action Coach, which is one of the biggest um, business coaching companies in the world. And then I, I do a lot of... Um, as I said, that leadership stuff, having that experience with those those high performance teams, and you know, um, seeing what 
makes them successful or not successful. You know, I was at, when I was at the Waratahs we in the, my first year, we went from second, then up to uh, uh, second last to second the following year, and I think mm. the year before had come fourth, maybe second before that. You know, why is that happening? Go the Reds, and they've been pretty average, and they fifth before I got there first that year, and then gradually going down again. So yeah, it's just a natural progression there, um, moving into that space in terms of the leadership and culture stuff. Mm. And uh, what what's, what are some of the groups you're working with? Are you working with businesses, sporting teams? Uh, you mentioned that's the military as well. No, I don't work with the military. I'm just, I'm just quite fortunate that I've had good mates and family mm. um, that have been in some of those, you know, the special services and whatnot, and been able to. Um, talk leadership and culture with those guys. Um, mainly, uh, you know, businesses, obviously decent-sized teams there, um, not-for-profits, government organisations, banks, yeah, a few of those sorts of things. Yeah, cool. And... Um I, I've been I've been tuning into your your little uh, video blogs that you're doing on your your LinkedIn page. There's some there's some uh, gold nuggets in in some of those. Uh, I was I was having a bit of a look through before the interview. Um, um, couple of things that resonated with me was one one was uh, your last one that you put out was uh, team before your clients, um, where you talked about a, a a business that let go of a client because of the issues they were creating within that that team. Um, I just uh, that resonated with me from a coaching perspective that that's so applicable to to um, you know some some roles you might have to do as a coach um, to to support your team. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, uh, and and what that experience was? Yeah, that one. You know, the old saying, "Oh, the client or the customer is always right." Like it's yeah, I definitely don't agree with that. Um, you know, you. When you go into bat for your team, and you see this especially with the professional sports because they're they're obviously copying a lot more scrutiny yeah. um, than just the amateur teams. But the coaches will often get quite defensive of that. Yeah, and they won't sit there. They will, the smart ones, the good ones, will be quite tactical with what their responses are mm. to the media. So they might sit there, and sometimes they will come out and you know um, have a go at their team. Or individuals, yeah. and other times they'll sit down and they'll be quite defensive. But you can, you know, or I've seen where they'll go into the change room and they will call you out on certain mm. things too. So, um, and when you go, you know, when you go into bat for your team, um, you know, because especially if the uh, you know the criticism is unjustified or you don't believe it's um, necessary, then what that does is build more trust that you mm. actually. I'm just going to sit there and let them let anyone just attack your team because at the end of the day you are a leader so that's what happened in that instance this client was just kept going at this um this team member and the leader the boss didn't think it was justified so you know what they did there got rid of the uh got rid of the client and then you know again as i said that builds up that trust and relationship with the team member and the leader and they came up and thanked them and said that was you know i really appreciate that Mm. it shows that genuinely care about people Absolutely. you know that they're not a number and that's one of the issues that I, uh, I believe that coaches probably 
underestimate the impact of. Like mm. anyone can go and put in decent tactics and strategies, but that's not what makes a good coach. Yeah. It's the ability to get those people to execute those strategies and tactics. And, you know, as I said, you've got to build up that connection with those team members. Yeah. Yeah, I see... I see Michael Checker doing that in interviews, um, where he'll he'll absolutely back his Eddie Jones does it too, and you know, um, I th- I think a- absolutely like you if if you're a player and you're you're hearing that you're you're on board straight away. Yeah, yeah. Whilst yeah, yeah, still coming in there and cracking the whip when you, but, you know, yeah behind closed doors, of course, and yeah, yeah. yeah. No, great, and um, yeah, the, the other one I'll, I'll touch on was um, you know. Speaking about uh, two coaches who are probably pretty good at this, um, having a message that's uh, really clear and direct and how important that is uh, to, to a team. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's happened to me a few times, you know, when I was playing, where coaches that either um, give you some feedback and you know, me being pretty direct, I'd go, what exactly do you mean by that? But other players, like, and I'd say, can you just, you know, go, tell me exactly what you're talking about or give me an example. Whereas other players might walk out and be like, oh, they, I think they said that they want me to keep improving on this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that might not necessarily have been the message of the confusion because mm-hmm. the coaches maybe, you know, doesn't have it in them to be quite direct and be quite clear with that feedback. Mm-hmm. And that's what we talked about. You know, we said that's so important. So there's that clarity. Um, and I use the terminology, you know, communication leads to clarity. And, and when you've got clarity, then you've got confidence. So if you sit there, mm-hmm. you know, with that communication, the player has clarity on what they need to do to get back in the team or um, improve, then they can confidently go and do that if they want to. Yeah. Um, and as I said, sometimes they don't want to hurt people's opinions, but they miss the message that they're trying to give. And then other times too, they just they don't have the balls to actually tell you what it is that you need to improve on, and they get caught out there. Which is, and as soon as you do that, when you don't, you're not honest and upfront with mm. um, your your player, um, and you know, you get caught out doing that, you've lost them. You've lost the trust, you've lost the respect, and it's pretty hard to come back from there. And I haven't seen any coaches that I can think of do that. Yeah, no, that's a really good message. And, uh, you know, uh, definitely, definitely important to have that, that uh, you know, trust and integrity um, that your, your players feel that what you're telling them is, is, is what you're meaning. Yeah, Sir Alex Ferguson is more important to be respected than liked. Mm, yeah, no. spot on. Yeah, eh? Pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah, and um, yeah. you know, embarking on this leadership and uh, coaching work that you've been doing, what what's been some of the big, the real big learnings for you in in this kind of uh, short period of time that you've been what doing it? Um, I suppose again just working on myself like the best thing about this is that you're sitting there learning about you know first and foremost what i have to do i want to improve mm, and change yeah. and sit there preaching and we're talking about humility like i am yeah definitely no i'm going to be a much better leader in the future than what i am now and that's yeah. what i'm excited I'm sitting there changing and, you know, people go to me, geez, you've changed since last year or <laughs> last couple of months. And, and you know, I, being able to uh, reflect and be honest with myself and go, right, I, I, I stuffed up, as you said, you know, like I didn't do that right, I didn't communicate that properly or, mm. you know, 
could have um, approached that a lot better. You know, I've still got to work on my my patience <laughs> and my delivery <laughs> when I'm um, frustrated or angry and those sorts of things. But then also, you know, getting those people around your door so I understand that, hey, like, sometimes I am being frustrated and angry and I'm doing that with a purpose too, so don't worry mm. about that. Mm. You know, sometimes perception that leaders have to just be friendly and lovey-dovey. You know, I mm. do a lot of intelligence stuff these days and people have this misunderstanding that emotional intelligence is all about just, you know, getting in a group and hugging each other when that's when that <laughs> yeah. just knowing knowing when to crack the whip but also absolutely. when to put you know, and someone to show some empathy. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And uh you you got a book coming out. That's uh that's pretty awesome. How uh ten years ago would you ever thought you'd be an author? What's uh what's what's happening um, there? I don't know. Yeah, I, I did start to think about it at the end of my career, um, and yeah, pretty excited about it. Yeah. Um, going to hopefully appoint an editor in the next couple of weeks, uh, up to about seventy-five thousand words. So wow. I'll probably chop half of that. And it's just about what um, you know, what business leaders can learn about um, success. You know, the, the stages and traits required to be successful are applicable to any industry or field, you know. You know mm. you, you've got to have goals. You've got to have plans. You've got to be willing to make sacrifices. You've got to be you got to be determined. You've got to be dedicated. You've got to be passionate around what you're doing. You've got to have a good support network. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't sit there and tell everyone. I'm not silly enough to think that what I achieved throughout my, my career was because simply of my mindset and my work ethic. Like, I was fortunate enough to have access to some great coaches mm. who got the most out of me, yeah. So talk about that, um, you know, being a continual learner and whatnot, that's a big thing too, as we talked about, you know, constantly trying to improve and learn. So, yeah, those sorts of things that are applicable and then I just use stories from my experience. Yeah, does it does it have a working title yet or not 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 yet? And when, when you got a release date in mind? Uh, yeah, it does. I've got something in mind, but I'll just wait to see what the editor wants to do with it yeah, too. So we'll yeah. get very important their feedback. Yeah, well, definitely, uh, definitely keep an eye on that when uh, when it's out. I'll definitely push it out uh, via Twitter. And uh, what, what's the best way for for people to get in contact with you if they want to explore uh, your leadership work and and that kind of stuff? Yeah. LinkedIn, either LinkedIn, just Bo Robinson on LinkedIn or an email, um, Bo Robinson at actioncoach, A-C-T-I-O-N-C-O-A-C-H.com, yeah, so... um, Hopefully, people know. You know, some of the feedback, as you even said, has been good in terms of the articles and the um, the videos that I'm putting up on LinkedIn, which is quite humbling when people reach out to you and say that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, they obviously have a rugby focus because that's my background too. So mm-hmm. I think people often enjoy that perspective. Yeah. And I've got to say, I love the LinkedIn photo with the the half business suit, half uh, Reds jersey. So definitely, yeah. uh, I'll I'll use that for the the podcast episode too. That's uh, that's yeah. <laughs> Good man, that'll be on the book. Don't worry about that. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, uh, we always end the show with the the same final four questions. When you were when you were a kid growing up in uh, in Dubbo, uh, who were who were some of the players that you really looked up to and got really excited about and got you interested in rugby? Um, who did I say there? Uh, yeah, I wasn't a big. I wasn't a massive rugby. Um, you know, I watched a, watched a bit of it mainly 
just the free-to-air stuff with the Wallabies. Um, you know, my rugby league family, my old man's a rugby league man. Um, I enjoyed, you know, Todai Kefu was pretty good. Yeah. Um, uh, I like watching Johnny Wilkinson. Yeah. Um, you know, just thought he was pretty tough as a 5'8", particularly. Absolutely. He could do a bit yeah. of everything, and the, and the bloke could kick drop goals off both feet. I think yeah. that's pretty impressive. And yeah. just reading and watching about how determined and dedicated he was. Um, Butch James, is an African 5'8". Just another another tough there. 10, yeah. Yeah, just another. <laughs> in that strange, um, yeah, they're, they're probably the ones, uh, yeah, and obviously the few things there, probably not necessarily individual players, but, um, you know, some of the moments with the rugby stuff that stick out for you. Ben Tune, actually, I like Ben Tune. Oh, yeah, he was, he's a beauty. He, eh? he was, you know, for a bloke who... Um, he, he was one who could probably sort of, you know, he wasn't better than Jonah Lomo, but you could sort of match it at that era, wasn't he? Mm, yeah, he was fantastic. Uh, de- definitely, you know, underrated in terms, if you look at the, the, the Wallabies that are, you know, on that top top tier, um, he should be talked about more, I feel. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I think the fact that he got injured, came back and yeah. wasn't probably hurts him. Mm. That's going to often be the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what about now? Who are some of the who are some of the players you 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 like watching going around? Oh, I haven't. To be honest, I haven't been watching a great deal of it. I'll probably watch more of the English Premiership. I just find yeah, it a yeah. bit more even. Give me some um, names. But even then, I haven't been. Oh, Joe Marler. I really yeah. like Joe. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. He's, um, you know, just a bit of an angry man. I like his commentary uh, on box kicks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I was fortunate enough to be there with him sort of thing and he was good company. And just, like, yeah. again, like the way he played. Um, and Kyle Sinclair for a tight yeah. head. The yeah, absolutely, man. Skills, um, and uh, I always liked uh, James Slipper too. He was yeah. just a bloke who I thought was, mm. you know, for a prop. The skills that he p- possessed were phenomenal. He's been outstanding this season too. Yeah, who else is there in the Wallabies that's pretty aggressive? Um, I haven't seen much of this right, but I'm interested to see what he goes like. Yeah, Lyons. yeah, yeah. He had a he had a, a good season with the Reds for sure. He's uh, he yeah. uh, he he won him a few few games for sure with his his breakdown presence. Yeah, right. Eh? And then yeah. you you got the the U twenties um, captain. He's also with the Reds as well. He's an open side as well. Uh, I think it's McWright um, or uh, yeah, Fraser McWright. Or well, I might be blowing this one, but he's also another uh, beauty coming through as well. Yeah, I don't think the issue is necessarily about developing those youngsters; it's about mm. keeping them. Absolutely, yeah. And taking them to the next level, it's the hardest thing. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, absolutely. And what about coaches? Who are, who are some of the high-profile coaches? You you like what they're doing, uh, whether you worked with them or or, or not? Um, I'm I'm interested to see uh, where Matt Taylor, who looked after yeah, me, absolutely at the. Uh, at the Reds, where he ends up, like yeah. he's been assistant, he was assistant coach. He went from the Reds to over to Glasgow. Glasgow won the Pro 14 or the Pro 12, whatever it was back then. Yeah. Been doing some things with Scotland. Yeah. Um, hopefully, see him back in Australia. And I'm interested to see how he goes when he steps up as um as a head coach. Um, God, there's that many of them over there. You can't even remember who else is over there and what they're doing. Yeah, I had um, Matt Taylor on the show. Actually, he was fantastic. The tattoo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was a beauty. And then um, he was 
what I loved about him too was I flicked him a few emails afterwards about some questions I had and then he was all about having a oh. Skype chat and, you know, trying yeah. to work through some stuff. So, yeah, fantastic. And, um, yeah, like he, he's, he's a he's a student of the game too and, and coaching and leadership, you know, like mm. I, I talked to him a bit on um, Instagram. He's like putting up photos of like, you know, his bookshelf and just loves it, mate. Just, mm. And that's, that's something that's, I think, um, integral to be a good leader is you've got to be passionate about what you're doing. Yeah. And yeah. he definitely is. Um, I'm interested to see how Scotty Johnson goes yep. with the direct rugby too, what impact mm-hmm. that has on mm. on the Wallabies and, and Rugby Australia. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's an interesting one for sure. Yeah, I'm keen, keen to see where that goes as well. And, Lane, last question, what, uh, who, who are some grassroots coaches that you you know and, uh, you know, don't get the accolades of the these, these coaches that you think uh, are doing good work and need a They're bit of a shout out. environment there? Nah, no, nah, just plugging away, doing it for the love of the game, um, you know, out in Dubbo or Bathurst or, or whatever. I'd tell you, I'd have to give um, a rap to all of the coaches in the competition. So we're in the competition. It's only got six teams, mm. but I have been, like, impressed with how these teams are coached out yeah. here. Yeah. Um, we've got, you know, some bloody good coaches. They've got great systems and structures out here. So I would say everyone at the moment that's in our competition is a bloody good coach and has, you know, has done some good things. Like you, you expect bush football to be a bit of a throw around, and, mm. but it's definitely not out here. So it's, yeah. Very surprising and, and great to see. And a lot of people are commenting on that too at the moment, just going how impressive it is to actually see these structures and how well they're playing. Mm, yeah, oh, that's great news and, you know, really exciting. And, you know, it's it's, it's so key for, for Australian rugby is to have a healthy, uh, you know, New South Wales and Queensland country uh, club, club scene for sure. Mm, yeah. Yep, definitely. Cool. All right, Bo, well, it's been great chatting with you, mate. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. And I think you've provided uh, listeners with a really interesting uh, perspective from a, from a player's point of view. And uh, there's, there's so much in this uh, for, for, for coaches to take away from a leadership point of view, but also to think about players and, and, and how, you're, how you're dealing with individual players and how, you, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, model. So, yeah, I appreciate you giving up your time and uh, thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking um, rugby, coaching and leadership. Awesome. Cheers, mate.